have you seen the NBC drama La Brea? I haven't, but I've okay. heard of it. Yeah. What happens in La Brea is that in Los Angeles, the ground gives way right by the La Brea tar pits, and a whole lot of people plunge into this sinkhole, and then they go through a sort of tear in space-time that's, I guess, beneath Los Angeles, and then they land in prehistoric Los Angeles, right? Wow, that's it's so funny because that, to me, sounds like the pitch was, what if any of us had a basement? <laughs> Exactly. What And what if we got all the basements together and then science fiction and then yeah. show? <laughs> That's like the closest you can get to imagining a basement in Los yeah. Angeles. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody kind of pooled their resources and <laughs> yeah. yeah. And there's, there's like a little Spanish tiling around the edge of the chasm. But on the show La Brea, there's there's a character who's a doctor, and then also falling into the pit is his daughter who's in college. And in the first episode of La Brea, she has to break it to her dad that she changed her major and that she's no longer pre-med. Like wow. he really wanted her to be pre-med. And he's so upset. He's not upset that he fell into this chasm and landed in prehistoric times. <laughs> he's mad that she changed her major. And I had heard somewhere that you were a pre-med student and, and then got pulled away from the life of comedy. And if I was going to ask if you've seen La Brea, but you haven't. So I guess my question is, you should go see La Brea, which is yeah. not a, really a question. And I will be, my lawyers will be contacting the targets. <laughs> <laughs> Just dropping a cease and desist down this enormous... Yeah. Exactly. My lawyers, by the way, are just me wearing a series of fake mustaches. (laughs) (laughs) And turning your head in different directions as, as you talk. It's Depression Mode. I'm John Moe. I'm glad you're here. It's not that Brothy Gupta doesn't have any reason to be serious. She has loads of reasons to be serious. A serious career in comedy. She's a writer on The Simpsons and is a real rising star in comedy circles. She has a serious history with mental health issues like anxiety and depression. And she has a history with rheumatoid arthritis, which can be quite serious indeed. She's also in a serious relationship. No, there are plenty of things to be serious about. For Brothy, but she's often just not all that serious. She makes a lot of jokes. Is it a defense mechanism? A coping strategy? Is it a form of denial? Or is she someone very much in touch with the full complexity and seriousness of her life who just speaks in comedy? It's a dialect. Is she someone for whom jokes are just part of the vernacular? Let's try to find out because that we're going to talk to her here on the show. Brothy Gupta grew up in Kentucky, just across the river from Cincinnati. So I lived in this little town called Winchester, which is like very close to where the Derby happens, basically from Cincinnati. I'm just on the other side of the river. Probably explains my like very thick Southern accent. 
<laughs> that I'm from Kentucky. Uh, did you did you have that interest in comedy right off the bat? No, I actually I did not really think of comedy as like a viable career option. I you know I grew up pretty much just thinking, well, just be a doctor, you know, in the future. But the future will never happen, <laughs> so I'll never have to deal with that. Wait, why wasn't the future going to happen? Well, because when you're a kid, I feel like you never actually, like, it doesn't dawn on you that what you might do as an adult will then be the thing that you do. Uh-huh. <laughs> because you're like, I'm a kid forever. Yeah, yeah. Were your, your parents doctors? My dad is a doctor. Okay. Um, uh, so that's probably where the first idea came from. But my my parents are very funny. My mom especially is like an extremely, extremely funny person. And so growing up, you like had to be funny in my family. So it was such a like part of the DNA of our home that there was no sort of like this could be monetized. Uh-huh. You know? <laughs> uh, siblings? I have an older sister. I have an older sister. She's finishing up law school right now. She's also very, very funny. Okay. Was it a competition with comedy around the house? It wasn't really a competition. It was more, this is just how we communicate. And it'll never show up in therapy ever again. <laughs> <laughs> and your did your parents immigrate from India? Yeah, so they were in India, and they had my sister there. My, when my sister was a baby, they moved to England, where I was born. And okay. then when I was a baby, the family moved to the U.S. Wow, that, that old classic India-England-Kentucky route that you hear yeah. so much about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's how the country started, right? That's- yeah. Yeah, generally. Yeah, you learn that in yeah. history class. You learn that in a good history class. Yeah, you learn that in a good history class is that Pangea was the yeah. tri-state area was India, <laughs> England, and northern Kentucky. Northern Kentucky, especially. <laughs> I, I've met a fair number of people who are in comedy who are first-generation Americans. I've been at least comedy-adjacent for a long time. My parents immigrated Parnan Anchurla, yeah, first generation. Margaret Cho, who I've interviewed several times, first generation. So people from all over the world, and I, I've always wondered if that's a coincidence or if that's if there's something about being first generation that lends itself to that. I mean, I think that there there is a lot of the typical kind of like balancing two cultures, but also I think being able to like be funny in multiple languages, I think takes a lot of I, I think that that's like a very specific thing that immigrants learn pretty quickly is how to be you know how to like adapt to any sort of situation conversationally and how it's much easier to feel accepted or to feel like a part of a larger group when you're making someone laugh so I, I think that that's probably part of it another part of it is just like Again, my mom is a very funny person. Just naturally. Like she's just naturally has always been my mom's entire side of the family. Just so funny, very like bit oriented. Like my mom's side of the family, especially like, you know, my grandma even used to say this, like the funniest thing you can do is waste a ton of someone's time. <laughs> <laughs> just like on a long story that goes nowhere or something. 
Yeah, there's like one thing, there's a story that my mom used to tell me as a kid. There's like an older man and a younger man on a train and they're talking to each other and someone's overhearing them talk to each other and the older man's like, where are you off to? And then he says, you know, oh, I'm going to this stop. And then they're like, oh, I'm actually also going to that stop. Where Where do you live? They, you know, exchange addresses, realize they it's the same address. And they're like, oh, what apartment number are you? Turns out to be the same apartment number. And then this guy overhearing them is just like, you got, you live together and you don't know each other. And then they were just like, oh, we're just killing time. No, we're, we're father and son. <laughs> we're just finding something to talk about. <laughs> just going to stretch it out. I'm familiar with your, your work mostly through Twitter because when I started reading your Twitter, I was just like, my God, she's just hitting home runs. Like the batting average was so high. Wow. Thank you so much. I'm so sorry you have to see my Twitter. <laughs> no, no. I, I sought it out because I I mean, my own Twitter, I just sort of like, this may be a joke. It may just be a thing in my head. I'll send it to the world. And I, I feel like I'm, my, my batting average is a lot lower. And so I've, I've, I've been impressed with a lot of what you've done. And, you know, just even in that uh, format, it's a little like, like Rob Delaney. Like a lot of people didn't know who Rob Delaney was until he just started murdering Twitter. Um, and I've seen, thank you so much. That's so kind of you. Well, I've seen hints about mental health on there and I've seen hints mm -hmm. about, uh, depression and, and some anxiety issues. I know there's some, some chronic pain issues. Yeah. How far back do those go? Oh my gosh. So far back. I mean, far back enough where there is like, there's like a video of me as like a two year old. And I like am upset about something, but I guess I very early on like absorbed the concept of shame. Oh. And so I, as like a two-year-old, I like turn my head away so that I think no one can see me and just one single tear <laughs> comes down my face. And it's like so devastating to watch. God. And so weird. <laughs> wow. So it goes back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it goes back you, very far. <laughs> yeah. That's, I mean, you're now, I've been doing these shows for, for many years and you're, you're, you're now tied with Andy Richter for the youngest instance <laughs> of something <laughs> dark and horrible happening. Yeah. He also hit it at two. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you're sharing the gold medal of, of despair. When did you identify it as something called depression or something that felt like a disorder, something that was really, you know, a presence? Yeah. Um, I think it wasn't until after high school. I spent high school being very anxious and not popular. And I was like, this is probably just how everyone lives. Everyone lives with like, you know, severe acid reflux all the time. And then when I went to college, I initially started seeing a counselor because I was like, it was under some sort of like guise of like, I would like help organizing my life now that I've decided to take this different career path. But then the counselor was like, you're like deeply unwell. <laughs> <laughs> really? You're like, well, he was like, he was like, can we make it a challenge for you to not try to make me laugh? for like one session 
And I was like, no, thank you. <laughs> Couldn't even make it through one session without trying to make that counselor laugh. Would not even accept the challenge. We'll get into that right after this. Back with Brothi Gupta, who was just talking about a counselor in college challenging her to go one session without trying to make him laugh. She refused to even attempt it. I, I think it was just like that was the only way that I could communicate anything and still is. I mean, I'm like, there is no, it's like a deep challenge of mine to like feel or be aware of any emotions that I may have because in my mind, I'm constantly like doing a bit around it, hmm. you know? So I guess that's still a work in progress. I think it's like, it's interesting because I, you know, as a teenager, I was very, very anxious. I was very like academically oriented. I was very like achievement excellence oriented, which was very funny because I was not like I was not the smartest kid in my class by any stretch of the imagination. So it was like, find a new thing. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> That's an uphill battle. I mean, did, yeah. did, did you want to be pursuing this academic, kind of a hardcore academic achievement thing? Or did you feel like you just had to? I think it was like, I, I felt like I had to. That was also, I went to a very competitive high school that was like very academic and excellence oriented. So I felt like that was a way to like feel valued as a person was to like churn out, you know, an A or <laughs> something. Yeah. Get good test scores, get to a good college. Yeah, exactly. And then it's like, then I, I can, you know, sit down and, and sleep for a year or two. <laughs> Did you have the thing where you thought if I could just nail a good SAT or ACT score, or if I could just get to that good college, then I'll feel better because then, you know, nobody who's had that success could possibly be depressed or anxious. Yeah. It was very like it. And I, honestly, those words were so, um, like to say that you were depressed or to say that you were anxious was like, you know, drawing negative attention to yourself. And there was like, and I actually remember, you know, when I was in middle school, there was like a, I, for like a hot second was like, oh, maybe I am depressed. Maybe I have anxiety. And I, you know, went up to a teacher and I was like, you know, I'm feeling, I'm feeling all of these things. And then eventually she was like, uh, you're clearly just seeking attention. And I was like, oh, no. And at the time I was mortified, but then I was like, this will probably just like wash over me. And here we are 14 years later <laughs> or 15, wow. 15, 16 years later. And I'm wow. like, oh no, oh no. I would like to write her a, a card and, and say, you get 10% of my, <laughs> you, you deserve 10% of my, um, of my paycheck. Of all your pain comedy revenue. Yeah. 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 But then I will have to invoice her. So yeah. it's like, I don't know. It, it probably does. It probably would net to like a zero. <laughs> I'm sure that like Venmo or PayPal has something like that set up that you could yeah. just. I should, I should look that up. Run a I script or something. 
the you just want attention thing always gets me because the answer is yes, I do yes. want attention. <laughs> That's the and, problem. Yeah. Well, then it, it was also interesting because like that was such a formative experience for me because it was, you know, I was 12 or 13. That's not an easy time. It's a famously difficult time for people who, you know, you wake up and you're like, there's hair everywhere. And I didn't see that coming. And every part of my body is growing in a different way. In, up, out. And then all the hormones come rushing in. And that's, I mean, for most people, that's right around when the depression fully blooms. Yes. And so that was actually coming off of like, I had experienced sort of the first major death in my family, which was my grandfather had passed away. And so there were a lot of very confusing things happening where like now, you know, I see like my friends with kids in LA, they're just like, so proud of whenever their kids like talk about their mental health, (sighs) their kids are all going to therapists, like, you know, as though the mind and body are connected in any capacity, which is insane to me. (laughs) But at the time it was very like, that was one of my most, I think that that experience was like, I'm going to try to open this door of maybe like talking to somebody, talking to like a grown up, And then this grown up was like, Oh my God, it's so embarrassing that you have this door. (laughs) And then I was like, holy shit, you're right. (laughs) And then shut that real fast. And says, remember that shame you felt at two years old with the tear down your cheek? Well, I've brought it back. She's like, we got to circle back to that. Yeah, that was the good stuff. We got to bring that back around. (laughs) Yeah, she's like, oh, please hide that from me. (laughs) That's inconvenient for me. So therefore, yeah. it must not be happening. Oh my gosh! <laughs> I want to get back to the. I hope you... she doesn't hear this. <laughs> We're big among middle school teachers in the Cincinnati yeah. metro region. Well, that's what that's what I'm hearing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we, we go we go everywhere. We're like a. Yeah, we're like a broken Oprah. I want to get back to what you said about being in college and being challenged by a counselor to go a whole session without without going for the laugh. And how you you would turn your thoughts into bits. Do you have an example of what you're talking about with that? Yeah, I mean, it was like, I feel like I every time I went to a counseling session, I had some sort of like routine. So it was like, you know, if I was talking about the stress of, you know, my family expecting something from me, and then me wanting to do this very risky job. I had this whole bit of like my parents sacrificed everything to come to this country and they won't accept that I want to be a clown like that kind of a thing Uh where it was like I was kind of trying to craft a tight five, but that's not what like the counseling service is for. Like the counseling service is is to like hear hear very sad sentences from me that might ring true or honest in any capacity but for some reason i was like no i'm i'm on a college tour and my first stop is the counselor's office <laughs> do you, what do you think was behind that instinct to kind of go for the laugh and go for the bit even if it's internal is it a matter of that's how you were processing it or that's how you were shoving it away 
I think it was like a little bit of both. You know, I think that there was a lot of, because of that incredibly mortifying experience of being told you're an attention seeker, drama queen, and <laughs> and you have to leave me alone. <laughs> um, <laughs> we're going, um, we're going to show up in her classroom. I'm going to get a bunch of our listeners together. We're yeah. going to drive there. It's going to be awesome. Yeah. And then we're going to, we're going to just like learn something and then leave <laughs> because we will have forgotten. We will have forgotten going. Right. Yeah. We'll rise above it just as we walk in the door and then we'll walk back out the door. Yeah. Yeah. It'll just be like, oh, this, this strange group of adults came in <laughs> and expected something. And so then I, I taught them about like, the government or like PEMDAS or something Red like Scott that. Red Scott decision. Um, yeah. And then they left. <laughs> I'm sorry. I kind of interrupted. So you were talking about how you were processing it and, and shooing these feelings away at the same time. Yeah. I think it was like this thing of, I, if I'm making you laugh, I'm in control. I'm not going to be vulnerable. Yes. And that's like a very, it's a very easy way to feel in both control of the narrative and then also like you can never be accused of letting some sort of guard down because it's an act. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Did you mean to get around to solving it later or was it just a matter of, no, I'll always be like this. I just, I'm going to put up this show. Yeah, I mean, I think there was in the back of my mind, I was like, you know, there's a lot that I'm shoving down. But, you know, the the exchange there is like, maybe that shaves 10 years off. But I don't know, those last 10 years are kind of a wash anyway, right? So <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I always thought that if I could just keep and, and I'm someone who didn't get diagnosed till my mid 30s. And I, I always thought, if I could just keep up the act and have nobody catch on till I die, then I'll win. Exactly. (laughs) I'll fool them all. And that's, I mean, they famously say that when you die is when you win. (laughs) Yeah, that's, that death is well known for its victories, I think. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So, so. History is written by the dead. (laughs) Exactly. Very, very slowly. Did you, did you get better help during college? Did you, like, when did, when did it start to kind of unlock a little bit? Um, I think in college, it started to just because in college, I went through like a pretty tragic personal loss of somebody in my life who died by suicide. And so there was like a very acute thing that I could point to. I was like, I, I need to like, what, what is it called when um, you're trying to work out just like one part of your body? <laughs> Like uh, isometric so, exercise, spot something, something. It's yeah. like, yeah. And, and so that's kind of what I, w- I was like, I can point to like a thing that happened. Mm, yeah. So that's, so then we'll just fix that and then I'll be off. So you thought it was a matter of fixing how, like how you were handling the death. Yeah. I thought it was a matter of like sort of targeting one issue and then moving on from that uh but i did not think of it as like a lifelong process you know like i didn't think of it as something that 
I would have to keep up with. Because <laughs> I was like, you know, fix me. <laughs> and then I'll be gone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How, how long until, how many sessions will it take to fix this thing? You know? Yeah. It's like, what kind of, is this like a, like a four week program? Like, is this sort of a, yeah, is this like a meal service? Is there a punch card? Do I get a free smoothie at some point? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, I mean, I, I often compare it to like that point of view is it's like car repair, you know, as long as my carburetor is working fine. Yeah. We'll just ignore the transmission for a while. Do you feel like you got a grip on it? Do you feel like you have a grip on it now? Do you feel like you have a strategy now on how to manage all these things? Oh, my God. Absolutely not. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. Okay. But I have been dipping my toe into it, you know, testing it out. Sure. <laughs> seeing what it's like to take care of your health. Try before you buy. Exactly. Doing like a trial version of taking care of my body. Okay. <laughs> Just see how that works out. Yeah. Let's see how it works. No, it's it's actually been... I think just getting to a therapist is the hardest thing <laughs> because for a while I'm, my boyfriend, Greg, who is just like a much more pleasant person than me, <laughs> he <laughs> rules. It's like, it's so funny. It, he rules so much. And it's, and to me, I think that it's very progressive that, like, a as a woman of color, I suck this hard next to this white man. Yeah, I was going to say, you really are a monster. I can't stand talking to you. It's, it's you know, really yeah, hard to Yeah, it sucks. <laughs> <laughs> it sucks. And, you know, I know this is a podcast, but right now, uh, John is just wiping off a, a gun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, no, I'm, I'm, I'm famous for my violent outbursts. It really helps when you host a mental health podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And there's maybe, I think we're looking at a cannon. Yeah. It's not that I collect antique weapons, is that I, I like to steal them from the people who do collect them. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And then you like to use them. And I like to use them, <laughs> ideally against the person I stole them from on the way out the door. Yeah. Completing the circle. They call you, they call you Cannonball John. Yeah, Cannonball Mo. Yep. That's, uh, that's, uh, I get that a lot. It's not super clever, but no, I mean, no. but you know, there's only that amount of time that you can come up with a name before you're, you know, victim of canon. I can't always <laughs> afford the best branding agencies and the most intelligent publicists. So you kind of have sure. to go with the ones that you can get off the sure. bulletin board at the dollar store. That's how exactly. it works. <laughs> See, now we turn the whole thing into a bit again. This is... You know, this is classic <laughs> yeah. brothy. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I was talking about my lovely boyfriend, Greg. Yes, your like, boyfriend, Greg. He is the result of has been regularly going to therapy for a long time. Like, is the result of somebody who, like, genuinely takes care of himself, like, remembers to go to the doctor. <laughs> um, and at a certain point, he, he was actually the one who was like, because I... I was so sporadically seeing a therapist. He was like, hey, have you thought about regularly seeing one? Um, and I was like, well, you regularly see one, and then I tell you my problems. Why isn't that system working for us anymore? <laughs> it's not and, like zucchini. Yeah. 
I was like, but I've been tricking you into doing this for me. <laughs> yeah. I I don't think that answered your question, which I've now forgotten. <laughs> well, that's okay because I I wanted to uh, I wanted to get back to your La Brea moment anyway, which is yeah. So you were heading for a, a pre med kind of plan, and then you you went down the dark alley of of comedy and. Yeah. I understand you were in McSweeney's and Shouts and Murmurs while still in college, right? Yes. By by the end of it, I was published in, in both of those places. Uh, yes, <laughs> I guess is the answer. <laughs> yeah. Don't let the tear roll down your cheek. It's it's a good thing to be to be in both those places. I am open mouth crying. Okay. <laughs> I am scream crying right now. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. When did you make the call that, or have you, that the doctor thing isn't isn't the future and the comedy thing is? No, now I, I do just my own sort of DIY appendectomies around okay. town. Okay, sure. Yeah, um, dollar store bulletin board. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Take one. I mean, that's where we met. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> down by La Brea, I believe. Yep. Um, so it was actually after my first year of college, I, you know, was doing, I was doing pre-med that first year and I had sort of intended on eventually studying biochemistry. I wanted to do something in public health and, you know, now, now I'm a person who recently said something so stupid that Homer was brought into the scene (laughs) to say it. (laughs) And I forget what it was because I think I didn't know I was pitching. Wow. Oh, wow. So, <laughs> yeah, things have taken a different turn for me. But um, after my first year of college, I that's when that idea of like, oh, no, the thing that you say you're going to do as a grown up is going to be the thing that you do as a grown up. That's when that dawned on me. Mm-hmm. And so then I was like, I don't want to do this thing that requires like a lot just I that requires so much more brain power <laughs> in this different capacity. Like I don't want to do that. I I I don't want this life of being a doctor. I think again, I would like to be a clown, please. And I was thinking a lot about what I enjoyed doing, and I always really love to be around funny people. I always really wanted to be funny myself, but it was like, you know, because I was coming from a very funny family, it it didn't strike me as like a thing that I could uh, make a buck on. Yeah. (laughs) Be like going pro with doing the dishes or something. It's just the thing you do around the house. Which is famously why I'm in Hollywood is just for the money. As we all know, I am (laughs) big fan. I was trying to think of like what would make me look like a real like money person. And the closest thing that I could think of was I have a poster of a check. <laughs> <laughs> like that's the best thing that I could come up with. Yeah. Yeah. That's as, about like, as good as you can do. do. Yeah. They would have that in their, in their bedroom on the wall. Yeah, I have a poster. I have a poster of a check. <laughs> well, as I, as I understand Hollywood and, and, you know, stipulating that I live in Minnesota, but as I understand it, the real glamour, the real money, if you want all that, be a writer on television. Like that's, that is, that's who everybody yeah. gravitates to. I will say that it was, it was nice to like discover that my dream job 
was like a playwright's fallback. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like when a playwright sells out is my dream. That sort of felt like, oh, in this like insular world of entertainment, it's like my dream was to be an accountant. (laughs) Or it's like a very dependable thing. (laughs) Right. Right. And then... But in that scenario, that's when your parents are clowns and then you defy them by going off to be an accountant. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, I I was like reading a lot that summer and I was living back home with my parents and I just started writing. Like I just started writing like basically like journal entries that it was like I was writing a diary that I really wanted there to be an audience for. So not a, a real diary. I guess that's just personal essays. Yeah. Um, you were doing a humorous was, memoir. Yeah. Yeah. I was um, I was starting to do that. And then I realized it was like, oh, like I, I really enjoy this. And my very best friend who is brilliant and she, you know, is doing something similarly um, helpful to society like me. Um, which is that she is a social worker in (laughs) Ohio um, working in child services. And so we're kind of both doing the same exact amount for the world. Um, But she was like, she was suddenly so excited because she was like, oh my gosh, you're so funny. And this makes so much sense. And I didn't really get the doctor thing anyway. (laughs) And so um, due to her being very supportive and encouraging, um, and kind, I, you know, started to think about like, okay, well, you know, Nora Ephron made this a career, all the Tina Fey made this a career. Um, Perhaps I can be like one of them (laughs) to also do this in exchange for once again, my favorite thing in the world, giant check. Um, Yeah. (laughs) And I told it's either (laughs) that or enter golf tournaments, really. Yeah. (laughs) So I told my parents, I was like, I'm really loving this writing thing. And I had enough graduation money to spend one week in Chicago to take a class at the Second City. Oh, wow. Um, And so I took a week long, like, sketch 101 intensive class and you had to be at least 19 which I was at least 19 to enter Mm -hmm. um and I loved it and I had so much fun then when I came home I told my parents I was like that this is what I want to do and my parents were like oh no we oh no no no." (laughs) they were like no we want to like retire eventually they were like no we're like we've been burning the candle on both ends for so long (laughs) They were like, this is, that's not a thing. And I was like, you're stifling my art. (laughs) And, you know, and so then we reached an agreement, which was that I would do another semester of pre-med. And if I was still miserable, I could think about switching, but it had to be something more, it had to be something more realistic than comedy writing, than TV writing. But in the meanwhile, my mom told me, she was like, I am not going to believe that you're a good writer unless you get like published somewhere because your friends will always tell you that you're great, but you need like honest feedback. And so then she told me she was like, 
essentially like, I'm not behind this until you get published in The New Yorker. Wow. And that's like a huge, she thankfully was behind it before then, but that was like, that's like a, that's insane. Then you're on the map. (laughs) Did you explain to her that McSweeney's pays $30 an article now? Because that's... Not at the time. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, I guess that is <laughs> Not fairly at the new. Time. Thing. Yeah. At the time, it was exposure. <laughs> I wrote for McSweeney's for about twenty years worth of exposure before they started yeah. cutting those PayPal's. Yeah, yeah that's, that's a tough one. <laughs> it's a tough one, but anyway, that so that semester I started submitting writing just anywhere. And I was also very lucky to like, I went to a small women's college called Wellesley and I had just like the best friends, the kindest, most supportive friends who were like so excited that I was, you know, venturing because they were all like, they're all just like loser neuroscientists now, but, um, (laughs) they were, yeah, (laughs) yeah. It's like, okay, you fucking morons. (laughs) I just, if I see them calling, I just, all I say is too smart and then I hang up. Yeah, yeah, good. They need to know. And they know it means that I'm too smart for them. But, uh, you know, they were like helping me look up all these places to start submitting my writing. And I very luckily ended up published back when, you know, College Humor was a website that published humor now I think it's like a one ad for M&Ms, maybe. I think that's what all, every site on the internet is. Um, but they published me. And so then my mom was like, okay, like one person thought you were funny, but that's not, that's not everyone. That's not New Yorker. And then I submitted to a sketch competition at the Second City. I submitted a sketch that I wrote and I they ended up selecting it as like one of the winning sketches to perform. And so then I was like, that's when my parents were a little bit more like, okay, these are like adults who are like acting out, who are like, you know, willing to act out the things that you wrote. So this, that's probably a good sign. And so they, you know, were easing up on it a little bit more And then finally, by the next year, I had, like, an internship at College Humor, which maybe I drove into the ground. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, then I started started getting stuff more regularly published. And then it was, like, that that finally convinced my parents. But it was a tough, you know, it it was a tough time... For somebody like myself, who was like, like my, what I run on is approval. (laughs) So, Uh so that was like the first time that I ever did anything that didn't have a hundred percent approval. Yeah. From the get go. That's a, that's a tough room, the world. What, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. What was that like for you, though, as, as somebody with, with a history of depression, with a history of anxiety and kind of trying to keep that at bay? I mean, you're, you're young, you're trying to prove yourself. You don't have the approval of, of your parents, at least initially, and you're veering hard off course for what you're supposed to be like, that's, those all seem like factors that would make depression, anxiety explode. Yeah. And I think it, I think it did. And I think that 
And I think that I'm paying for it now. (laughs) Really? How so? I mean, I think that just physically, something that I learned very recently from my therapist is that when you repress things, they don't go away. (laughs) They become part of your body. (laughs) I also have rheumatoid arthritis. I mentioned a couple places that humor gets published there. McSweeney's is a respected site for smart written comedy. Shouts and Murmurs is the humor section of the New Yorker magazine. Brothy makes a lot of jokes, and we have a lot of laughs in the interview, which is great. But I hope you've been picking up on the pain and stress in her story, because there's plenty of it. And now it's not just psychic pain, but physical pain as well. More in a moment. Hello! I'm Pee Wee Herman. You might know me from TV, but I really want to be a DJ! It took some convincing, but KCRW finally agreed to give me an hour on the radio to play you some music with my friends. (laughs) Anyway, tune in for one hour of the bestest, most funnest time you'll ever have on the Pee Wee Herman Radio Hour. I am personally inviting you to tune your transistor radio in to hear me or go to kcrw.com. Duh. (laughs) It'll be available for the whole week from November 26th to December 3rd. So you can listen to it again and again and again and again and again. The Pee Wee Herman Radio Hour was produced by Maximum Fun and can be streamed on KCRW.com until December 3rd. Hey, I'm Dan McCoy. I'm Stuart Wellington. And I'm Elliot Kalin. Together we're The Flophouse. A podcast where we watch a bad movie and then talk about it. Movies like Space Hobos, Into the Outer Reaches of the Unknown and the Things That We Don't Know, the movie, and also, who's that grandma? Zazzle Zippers, Breakdown 2, and Backhanded Compliment. Elvis is a policeman. Baby Crocodile and the Happy Twins. Leftover Potatoes? Station Wagon 3. Herbie Goes to Hell. New episodes available every other Saturday. Available at MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Bye! Bye. Back with Brothi Gupta, talking about a lot of accumulated stress and the emergence of rheumatoid arthritis. It's an autoimmune disease that can cause pain throughout the body, especially in joints around the hands and feet. Um, and, and, um, that gets very exacerbated by all of these sort of like emotionally repressed moments of my life, presumably that I've used to like train myself to kind of get through the day, you know? When did that get diagnosed? When did you realize it was that rheumatoid arthritis was the thing? Um, that was in 2017. So that was like around, yeah, it's almost like exactly four years ago that that was diagnosed. How did you discover that? I mean, you were in pain, but how did you discover it? That's what it was. So I was, I, and I suspect that I actually had it like a few years. It actually started a few years before 
I was officially diagnosed because I was always just like, I felt a little bad physically all the time, but I was like, that's probably everyone. (laughs) Um, But there was this time period in 2017 where it was like, I would wake up and see like my wrists, knees and ankles completely swollen, like hands so swollen that I couldn't get like a bracelet off something that I could get on the night before, (laughs) but would wake up and, and, you know, all of that, like, all of that, like, synovial fluid would, would then, like, collect in my hands, making them look suspiciously like Mickey Mouse's hands. And so you got to a a doctor to, to figure that out? I got to a doctor. I eventually got to a doctor, and the doctor was like, let me see your hands. And then as I was like lifting them, he was like, whoa, yeah, there's a lot of arthritis there. <laughs> and I was like, don't yell. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want your doctor to get shocked. That's that's yeah. never a good thing. <laughs> I've talked with people about about chronic pain and the effect on, on mental health. Like how is the pain now? Is that something that you still live with all the time? Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And it's these days it's like it's – all right. It's like manageable, but I do still have this thing of like repression becoming a flare up. So once again, the amount that the mind and body are connected. Turns out. (laughs) Yeah. It's, and this happens every single week I go to therapy. I always just leave it going, wow, did you know, did you guys know about this? Like it's, (laughs) mind-blowing to me every week so you repress these things and then they they show up in in your wrists yes i think so and so there's like a lot of just i think i learned very early on that i can be very distant from my own i can sort of dissociate and watch like my anxiety or depression sort of in the same lens that i might watch like like a bird mating call on National Geographic. <laughs> like I'm just sort of, I can get myself in a place where if, you know, if I'm going through something, if I'm going through like a particularly difficult time emotionally, I can successfully and pretty instinctively get to a place of like, wow, that's nuts. Of like anthropologically studying what's going on with me. Right. But not experiencing. Just going like, Wow. Fascinating. Fascinating that that's what's happening to my body right now. I wonder if I'll ever have to deal with that and uh, and think about it. Yeah, it really is just like my, like the amount of sort of mind-body separation that I'm able to delude myself into thinking is very like David Attenborough versus (laughs) like a a chimp doing something a little weird. (laughs) Well, it's a defense mechanism. It's, I mean, it's not, that much different from trauma. Like you're, you're looking at a situation and you're saying, well, I, that's too much. I can't deal with that. So here's, here's what I'll do about that. I mean, like, it's like when people with trauma will, you know, or people in, in unstable homes, for instance, have that anxiety because they need to be on the lookout for threats. And so it's a very convenient thing. And so if you're looking at something and you can't handle it and your body says, put it over here, you know, but then it (laughs) it just becomes like, like I love Lucy with the chocolates coming off the, the conveyor belt. Which is very funny. So which is a classic comedy scene. That's classic comedy. So that's kind of the goal, right? 
or maybe that's not the goal. No, I don't know. No, that's not. The no, goal. no, no, that's not the goal. That's not the goal. That's not the goal. You're. Yeah, we're both. We both said that at the same time. Yeah. No, the goal. <laughs> Neither is to of us s- said that that was the goal. <laughs> the goal is to slow down the machine, maybe hire some new employees, and uh, you know, do, do, get the factory inspected a little bit. Look at their hiring practices. Yeah, the goal is to just be on island time, man. <laughs> What's it like for? Someone who's always had this interest in comedy from an early age to now be working on The Simpsons and have these ideas that you have become manifest through these characters that does it does the show predate you? Is the the show older than you as a human being? Yeah. So the show is I was born, I think, season four. (laughs) Wow. And they show it and it's graphic (laughs) and it's disgusting. (laughs) Um Penny Marshall yeah, is great, I'm, though, in that episode. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Fantastic performance. Yeah. No, she was, she was um, a genius. Yeah. Classic Sports Wilder episode <laughs> where I sprang for it. No, I, yeah, I'm, uh, let's see. How old am I? 27. How old is the show? Old. We're on season 33. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the show is older than me. Yes, it is. I will say that. That number is six. Yeah, 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 yeah. That number is six. But um, it is so, it is like deeply unreal in a way that like, that's another sort of dissociative thing for me where I'm like crazy that that's happening right now. <laughs> and it's like, it's so, it's so funny because like those characters are so in the, in like the DNA of America that like when I record those actors, when like, we were recording my episode. The first thing I said after we were done recording like Nancy's lines was she does an amazing Bart. <laughs> like that's, that felt like the thing that felt like a, a normal thing to say. Yeah, She sounds like Bart Simpson up there. She sounds just like Bart. <laughs> said the same thing after we recorded Julie for Marge. Yeah. Yeah. Like, God, she sounds like Marge. Even when she talks, just normal. They've got that and thing then nailed. I, and then, yeah, and then it was explained to me, like, what television and acting are. <laughs> and <laughs> How artifice actually works in the yeah, world. It was, yeah, it was then explained to me what was actually going on. To have been guided by this instinct toward comedy and to kind of follow that, realize that there's something there, realize that, that you can do this as an adult... And then, you know, writing on some of the the New Yorker and the Simpsons, some of these institutions, does that have an effect on your mental health in a good way? Because it's like we know that you can't achieve your way out of a depression, but there's got to be something no, but gratifying. You can, try. you can sure keep trying, <laughs> but it's got to be gratifying in a way, can't, isn't it? It is so gratifying and it feels deeply unreal. Like there's. I will say that there, you know, like being on The Simpsons has been, and I hate to spread some Hollywood gossip, so fun. (laughs) It's been the most fun job. It's, everybody is so nice and funny and lovely. Every single day has felt to me like when Annie first goes into Daddy Warbucks' house Mm -hmm. and everyone's singing around her. It's felt like that every single day. You think you're going to like it there. Yeah, and and I do. And then the next day it starts all over again. <laughs> does that help your mental health? It does. It's interesting because it's 
the thing that, and I'm about to get earnest in, in case any of your listeners want to <laughs> We've only been either... talking about an hour, so, you know, that's probably about time. Yeah, in case any of your listeners want to throw whatever device they're listening to this on into a nearby creek, now would be your time. But comedy writing, to me, has been one of the best ways for me as like a clinically repressive person to like to have a, a, some sort of outlet or to have or to feel good honestly <laughs> it's I mean I you know I started writing really I was just like writing these little joke things for my friends my first year of college and my first year of college I was like sort of fresh out of a breakup that was very sad for me at the time. And the amount that, like, comedy writing became the thing that pulled me out of, like, depressive episodes was really enormous. Like, that was, it was an enormous and generous gift, I think, that I I was able to you know, harness into bringing me those, once again, those dollar, dollar bills. I, because I am in this for the money. There you go. There you, there you got out of the sincerity. You were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got out of it. You would spend almost a minute in there. So. Almost a minute. So, hey, you, you can fish your device out of a creek, I guess. No. <laughs> I don't know how you're still listening. Our, our audience, the, the, you know, they, they eat bowls of sincerity <laughs> for breakfast. They like the sincerity. I, you know, I was in public radio for a long time. So like I, you know, I'm, I'm just like a big jet full of sincerity going, spraying out into the world. It's really That's, That disgusting. is like, it's truly like something that I am envious of is like the ability to be completely vulnerable and sincere for a set amount of time <laughs> and not veer from it. <laughs> like that, I... And it sounds so robotic mm -hmm. so often because I very recently, actually, a friend was, you know, going through a tough time and confided in me and was very emotional. And what I told her verbatim was, I think it's awesome that you're expressing yourself. That's so cool that you can cry, <laughs> is what I said. As if it was something like juggling or... <laughs> It was amazing to watch for me. <laughs> I was like, wow. Yeah, yeah. That's so cool. That's a magic trick. Well, it gets easier. I'm, I'm, I'm not quite twice your age, but I'm, I'm within a few years of it. And um, once you get old and your soul breaks and your spirit breaks, then so many opportunities for sincerity and weeping yeah. just come, Yeah, you know, the offers come rolling in. So just die that a little more inside exciting. and then it'll all come to you. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to make sure we, we save just a minute for you to tell folks what the Lecture Hall podcast is all yes. about. Because I do find it very entertaining and fascinating and odd. So the Lecture Hall podcast is co-hosted by myself and my very, very close friend, Dylan Galula, who is a very funny, she is an amazing actor, but then also a very funny writer. And she's just like a 
a hilarious person. And so we, a little over a year ago, we decided that we were sick of not knowing anything. (laughs) And so we decided to start this podcast where, you know, every week we bring a new topic that we've researched. In Dylan's case, she always does a very good job researching something and coming prepared. And I always do a terrible job of it. But that's sort of our shtick now, which is very fun for me. But yeah, it's available on Patreon. Um, And basically, it's just like two seriously unwell women talking at each other for a while. (laughs) I find it very exciting when you're both committed to a bit in that in those episodes. And as a listener, you're like, I don't know if they'll ever let go of this bit. We might just be down a tunnel that never actually no. ends. No. And, and it's, it's deeply distressing for our loved ones. <laughs> 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 Somebody has been like recapping our episodes in like a, in a, a little like a lecture hall wiki which has been very fun to, it's been like both very fun to read and also like these should go directly to a doctor. Um, (laughs) Like there was one of the recaps that I read the other day said that we spent like a good amount of time talking about how like Romans should stop thinking so much about their fall and start thinking about like the other great things they did. (laughs) What else they accomplished during their time. Like, don't focus on the negative. Yeah, it fell. Just get those recaps mailed off to your insurance company and all sorts of treatments will get approved automatically. It'll save yourself a bunch of time. Yeah. Actually, one of the, one of like a punishment one time that I had to face for being vulnerable and reaching out to my doctor about my antidepressants was that I emailed her and told her that I was going through a very tough time and I felt like maybe we needed to revisit what I was taking. And it was not until after I received her response and read the last chilling line of her response, by the way, great photo, that I realized that I had fully attached my headshot to the first email. (laughs) Wow. And it's like how, I mean, I, I will say... Very quickly did she adjust my medication after that. <laughs> like that, if, if you're a doctor and you get an email with a headshot attached, yeah. that's like a, that's, that's when you hang up and dial 911. Was it a headshot where you were actually holding a red flag or? N- no, but um, you can actually print it out and it doubles as that. Yeah. Yeah, it's like a black and white photo, but the flag itself is red. But the flag itself is is red, and then on the other side, the flag is white, like I've surrendered. <laughs> Brothy Gupta, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I feel like I answered none of your questions, but I talked a lot, and that's always a great It, it was, as long as the word count is there, it doesn't really matter what you say. That's Brothi Gupta. You can learn more about her at google.com. B-R-O-T-I-G-U-P-T-A. That's how you spell Brothi's name. That's not how you spell Google. Be sure to check out her Twitter and her podcast, Lecture Hall, co-hosted by Dylan Galula. And now we draw ourselves to a meditation moment. I don't call it a meditation minute because I don't like to be under the gun in terms of time <laughs> like that. Um, a chance to, to kind of uh, uh, slow our minds down because that is so good for mental health. 
Our friend Laura House is here from the Tiny Victories podcast. She's a meditation instructor as well and a writer. Hi, Laura. Hi. And uh, we're going to slow down here a little bit. We're going to enjoy some some silence. Nothing wrong with your podcast player, just some silence. And uh, you're going to walk us through it. Yeah, so we're just going to take a moment to let go. It's sort of experiencing just the you that's you, not the you that's reacting to all the stress <laughs> at the door and around you. So all you do is sit comfortably. You don't want to do this while you're driving. But as long as you can safely sit comfortably, sit comfortably, close your eyes. I'm going to give your mind a little job of just noticing your breath. Thoughts will come. You're going to have thoughts. Totally fine. Just notice your breath. Go ahead and slowly open your eyes. And you're back. Hello. Just you spending some moments with just you. Yeah, yeah. Not you plus bills. Right. <laughs> plus everything else. It's That's funny. not fun. I would, I would kind of beat myself up sometimes of like, I'm trying to meditate. Oh, I thought of what I'm going to cook for dinner. Oh, I'm, I'm bad. I'm doing it wrong. But like the, the idea of just, oh, no, just gently return to the breath. Everything's fine. Um, yeah, I, you can't do the, it wrong. I found that's the main thing that we have this idea that you blank out and there's right. no thoughts and right. you're not you're not tiger taming your brain thoughts. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> into no thoughts. You're going to have them. You're alive. I'm just relieved to not have to sit in a lotus position. I think that's a really wonderful thing. Oh, good. Yeah, better yeah. on the knees. Yeah, exactly. Laura House, you can find her at Tiny Victories and at laurahouse.com. Thank you, Laura. Thank you. Next time on Depression Mode, she found herself unable to hear and unable to write songs, which was inconvenient because she's Amy Mann. I was trying to listen back to the master and I, it sounded distraught. I thought something was wrong with my computer. Like that's how I realized that my hearing was so fucked up. So like I had all the symptoms of panic, but not, but I didn't feel it. But it's like, you are feeling it. Like that is the way of feeling it. It was just really strange to have only physical symptoms and not this sort of like mental, emotional feelings. Amy Mann on the mind-body connection of stress, trauma, and music. If people support our show through a small donation, we can keep being here together. And if not, we can't. If you already donate, you make Depression Mode happen, and we thank you. If you haven't donated yet, it's easy. Find a level that works for you, MaximumFun.org slash join. Hey, I wrote a book. Yes, I did. It's called The Hilarious World of Depression. It's a memoir. It's about me and mental health and life, and there are 
jokes in it and the reviews were good. So uh, buy it, perhaps. The Hilarious World of Depression is available where books are sold, logically, because it's a book. Be sure to hit subscribe on Depression Mode, give us five stars, write some reviews. That helps more people find out about the show, which helps our mission of getting those conversations happening. And another good thing that helps us out a lot is if you shop our sponsors that I mentioned during the show and use those discount codes because then you get bargains and they notice that, uh, that you're out there. I want you to know that the Suicide Prevention Lifeline is available 24-7 for free at 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-TALK. The Crisis Text Line, also free, always available. Text the word HOME to 741-741. Use our electric mail address, and we want two things from you at that address. One is the sounders, those little positive plugs at the end of the show from listeners. Record it on your voice message app. Electric mail it to us. Two, we're looking for your favorite moment from a Depression Mode episode. Record yourself telling us about that, and then electric mail that voice message to us. Depression Mode at MaximumFun.org. If you're on Facebook, look up our mental health discussion group, Preshies. A lot of good talk going on over there. We're on Twitter and Instagram at DepressPod. Our Depression Mode newsletter is available on Substack. Search it up. I'm on Twitter at John Moe. Hello, credits listeners. If you shaved Chewbacca, you'd have enough hair to make 15 human wigs. But you can't shave Chewbacca. Not because he'd get mad, but because he's pretend. Depression Mode is produced by Gabe Mara. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Rhett Miller wrote and performed our theme song, Building Wings. I'm always falling off of cliffs now Building wings on the way down I am figuring things out Building wings, building wings, building wings No one knows the reason Maybe there's no reason I just keep believing No one knows the answer Maybe there's no answer Hi, this is Abigail from Mountain View, California, and I'm glad you're here. Depression Mode is a production of Maximum Fun and Papa Chick. I'm John Moe. Bye now. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.